0: So if you would, turn in your Bibles to 1 Peter chapter 3 as we continue our march through the book, slowly but surely. I'll give you a moment to flip there. And while you're flipping there, there are many expressions about the eyes in life. Some of these sayings advise caution for us, like keep your eyes peeled. Other times, they are outright threats. I'm watching you. I'm keeping my eyes on you. Still others are the bane of a child's existence because moms have eyes in the back of their heads. But some of them refer to, uh, refer to gentle care and attention, like I'll keep an eye out for you. A common request between spouses is to keep an eye on the kids for a minute. So Peter refers to the eyes in the passage for this morning. And we'll see a reference both to the face and to the eyes of the Lord in this text. Now, while Jesus has a physical body, the Father is a spirit and does not have a physical, literal face or eyes like we do. But scripture likes to use what theologians called anthropomorphic language to try and express things about the Lord in ways that we can understand. So God's sight, his eyes refer to his all-knowing and all-seeing knowledge of everything in creation. There's nothing in our hearts or in our lives or even our, in our cells that God does not know perfectly. The only question will be what this sight means for us. How does the knowledge which God has change how we must live? Ultimately, what we will see in this text is that because God knows all, we must pursue good. So with that introduction, let's read 1 Peter 3 verses 8 through 12. Finally, All of you have unity of mind, sympathy, brotherly love, a tender heart, and a humble mind. Do not repay evil for evil or reviling for reviling, but on the contrary, bless. For to this you were called that you may obtain a blessing. For whoever desires to love life and see good days, let him keep his tongue from evil and his lips from speaking deceit. Let him turn away from evil and do good. Let him seek peace and pursue it. For the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous and his ears are open to their prayer. The face of the Lord is against those who do evil. So this passage begins the final address of the household code section of 1 Peter. Peter addressed all those under government authority, all those under employers, and even the roles of husbands and wives in the home. But now he's going to speak to all people, telling them the type of character that they should have. And this section that we're starting today is really going to run through chapter 4, verse 11. But we're just looking at this section for today so we don't spend five hours here. Um, Anyway, that being said, the first point is this. Because God calls, we must bless and this is looking at those first two verses, 8 and 9. So Peter begins verse 8 with finally. Now that doesn't mean that he's wrapping up the letter yet. This shows us that this is the final section of this household code, these specific instructions. In the past couple of weeks, we've looked at two sections that were addressed to three specific groups. Peter addressed slaves in chapter 2, verse 18, wives in chapter 3, verse 1, and then husbands in chapter 3, verse 7. Well, this command is not to one of those smaller subgroups. This is a command to all of you. So there's no one for whom these instructions are not binding and helpful. Now, I do find it interesting that Peter both began the household code with speaking to all believers, and he closes the household code speaking to all believers. So the instructions to all of you behave as nice bookends to this portion of First Peter. And here the address is very personal as well. So what Peter is going to say is for you as individuals and as the church. They're not checklist requirements. They're not wearisome duties to perform. The following are things for you to meditate on and take to heart. Through them, your fruitfulness, your love for one another, and your love for the Lord will be increased. Now, you may have picked up on my time here how I often pray for the Lord to bear fruit among us. And if you take these things to heart and seek after these things like treasure then you will have no shortage of fruit or fruitfulness in this church. So before, just before this, we saw commands about how wives are to adorn themselves with inner beauty. Well, here, pursuing these following qualities will bring beauty to all of our hearts. So pay close attention to Peter's words as we continue. Now, the ESV says to have the following qualities. Now The Greek doesn't actually have a verb listed, and that may sound odd, But if you remove have, you still know exactly what Peter is saying here. But adding the have does help us to understand and be completely sure of what he means. And the idea is that all of those qualities are being commanded. There is a force to the way Peter lists them. It is not an optional get it if you feel like it sort of thing. You could also translate it as become these things or you must have these things. The following things are not theoretical and they're not part-time qualities. You must be continually pursuing these qualities. It's a command to be actively growing in these traits. Now, verse 8 will list traits that are primarily focused on living with other believers, other people within the church. And then verse 9 is going to address mostly how to interact, interact with unbelievers in the world and even with persecutors. But first, in verse 8, Peter says to have unity of mind. Now, notice that he doesn't say to agree with other believers about everything. We don't have to agree on the best dessert, shoes, or who the best candidate for an office is. Unity is not conformity. We do not all have to think or act in the same way. But we must agree on the fundamentals of the faith. The unity of the church is not dependent upon worship style, nationality, or views on political involvement. The unity of the church is entirely dependent upon the gospel of Jesus Christ. You can come alongside, some, alongside someone who holds a completely different view of the millennium in revelation, and you can call them brothers. But if someone rejects the Bible as God's word, then they have crossed a line that makes true unity impossible. Unity is founded upon the most crucial and central tenets of the Christian faith. And on those core principles of Christianity, we are to have one mind, one purpose, and to work together towards a goal. We are to make disciples of Jesus Christ, and therein lies our unity. So that's the first thing. Second, Peter lists sympathy. Now, this one makes a great deal of sense when we consider living together in unity. If we cannot empathize with one another, loving each other is going to be just about impossible. We are called to walk with one another through this life. That means we must walk with each other through the good times as well as the fiercest trials of our lives. We have to learn how to connect with and understand each other in order to encourage and build one another up in Christ. Paul explains the idea well in Romans 12:15. Rejoice with those who rejoice. And weep with those who weep. We cannot just be thermometers that read each other and then do nothing else with the information. Reading the situation is important. Understanding it correctly is important. But it won't help if we don't do anything with the new information. We have to be more like thermostats that read the temperature and then trigger something to alter the temperature when it is too hot or too cold. When someone is rejoicing and happy, be happy with them. But when someone is deep in grief, Grieve with them. Be sympathetic to where other believers are and adjust your words and your actions accordingly. And sympathy really connects well with the third quality Peter mentions, which is brotherly love. it It is out of love for each other that we connect our sympathy with action. We are all connected and united to Christ, making us brothers and sisters. God's children need to love and to serve one another. We have the greatest possible model for how to display brotherly love. Now, many like to rank agape and phileo, which are two words for love. Phileo is that brotherly love word, and agape is what many consider more to be God's love, is how they describe it. But that ranking of the two is not necessarily always true or helpful. In the Gospel, according to John, the word phileo is used in chapter 5, verse 20. And it's used to describe the Father's love for the son. And then if you go to chapter 16 verse 27 of John, he uses phileo to describe the father's love for you. So really phileo and agape are both forms of God's love. And this word here in Peter is calling on you to love one another with a godly love, the love that the God the Father has modeled for you. All right, fourth Peter says that we must have a tender heart. No other translations say kind-hearted or compassionate. And the Greek word is derived from the word for intestines, which sounds gross. But is thought to be in the ancient world where the seat of the emotions were. And we still use phrases along similar lines, like butterflies in your stomach. Your stomach has a knot in it because of fear. So the idea here is similar to sympathy, really, but there is a nuance. Some of my seminary professors like to use a triad of think, feel, and do. Scripture is always teaching us one or all of those three things. And sympathy, I think, was telling us more how to think and what to do in relation to one another. But I think this tender heart word is telling us really how to feel. This is an instruction for our emotions. We are to feel deeply for one another. This is the natural and necessary complement for our sympathy. Our emotions are very important, especially in our relationships within the church. The fifth and final quality for verse 8 is that we must have a humble mind. Something I found surprising with this characteristic is that it was countercultural in Peter's day. Humility was not a virtue in the ancient world. Now, we say it's a virtue in our culture, but the culture doesn't really live like it is. But back in Peter's day, you were openly scorned if you were thought of as humble. Because after all, why would you be, want to be considered what, why would you want to be considered weak, which is what their view was. But Peter isn't addressing those who are doormats or weak to the point of being helpless. He commands us to be humble-minded. That means it is a virtue which we may teach ourselves, which we must be trained in. And this should not be confused with a poor view of oneself. They are not the same. One commentator wrote that a humble mind is a willingness to take the lower place, to perform the less exalted service, and to put the interests of others ahead of our own. So thinking of yourself as worthless or pathetic is not humility. It's actually a form of pride. Because in so doing, you are focused on yourself and what you think you should be, rather than on God and others. So humility, in this sense, is placing yourself under God's direction and seeking the good of others for yourself. So a church full of truly humble people will not lack servants for every avenue of its ministries. So humble yourselves before the Lord and serve one another. Okay. so all of those qualities were focused on life within the church. But what about when unbelievers persecute and mistreat us? Or, heaven forbid, what if a supposed Christian treats us poorly? How are we to react in those circumstances? Well, that's what Peter answers for us in verse 9. Peter commands us not to repay evil for evil or reviling for reviling. So when others mistreat or abuse us, we do not gain the right to mistreat and abuse them in return. Because our natural instinct is to fight fire with fire and return the evil. But that cannot be the way of God's people. There's a continuous aspect to this command as well. We are not to be repaying evil with evil or reviling for reviling. Well, the implication is that we will be wronged in this life. This has to be a continual process in this life. So whether it's one person in one sequence of repeatedly persecuting us or the combined attacks of the world throughout our lives, we may not ever mimic their actions. And we can see our model, if you were to go back to chapter 2, verse 23, that's our model for how to handle reviling. There we are told that Christ was reviled, but he did not revile in return. So we are to model Christ to the world. You will always be under attack from the world in some way. But we are called to something very different than cursing and deceit. So instead of returning, reviling, or evil, we are to positively Bless others. Now, my guess is that it will not take any convincing to tell you that you are supposed to bless other Christians, other believers. But is this command talking about just other Christians and believers? No, it is not. You are to bless the evil men committing evil against you and reviling you. Peter says to bless those who mistreat and persecute you. The word for bless is an active and continuous verb, but it could also be translated as blessing. We see a little bit of wordplay there. Don't be repaying or reviling, be blessing. We are to continually seek to faithfully bless others, even those who are least deserving of it. Even those who are dead set against us, we are to seek to bless in some way. Now that is a radical command. But why has God commanded this? How are we to bless those who abuse and persecute us? That sounds difficult. That sounds costly. But Peter, knowing the difficulty of this command, tells us two things. First, he says that to this you were called. And this refers to all the good qualities mentioned in verse 8 and our suffering at the hands of wicked men in verse 9. The Lord has determined a purpose in all of it, even our suffering. Oftentimes, we won't know the purpose for suffering until glory, but that does not mean that God does not have purpose in it. Jesus has called us to live holy and loving lives no matter where we are or who we are with. Now, we could try to argue with God, but we're not going to get very far. If he has called us to these things, then we must submit to those things. He has a purpose in all of it, so all we can do is follow Christ and trust that he is doing it for our good and for his glory. Well, second encouragement is that Peter says that we live holy li- as we live holy lives, we will obtain a blessing. Now, some take this to refer to the blessing we will receive in the future in glory, and the word uh, obtain can also mean inherit. Now, those theologians connect inheritance back with chapter one verse four, which talks about our inheritance in glory, and three seven, where husbands and wives are said to be co-heirs of glory. Also, they argue that the mistreatment in the rest of the verse precludes the possibility that this could be talking about this life. And this word is often used in the New Testament referring to eternity. However, I think that Peter is talking about present blessings here. Now, there are many other places that use the same word to talk about temporal blessings in this life. David in Psalm 37 uses the word several times to describe God's blessings and protection even while he was in the midst of his enemies. But the main reason I believe that this is referring to current blessing is because of the psalm Peter quotes in verses 10 through 12. Those three verses were all from Psalm 34. And that is a psalm of David, which is a psalm of thanksgiving for God's blessings in his life. Now, in the end of that psalm, David does mention blessings and glory, but Peter didn't quote the end. He quoted these verses. And so as we follow the Lord, seek to display godly character, love one another, and bless everyone, the Lord will bless us in this life even. The good life is only possible, though, as we walk in obedience to the Lord and follow his directions for living. Second point, because God sees, we must pursue peace. Because God sees, we must pursue peace. So before we dive into verses 10 through 12, we need to understand that Peter is quoting from Psalm 34, which we read and sang and used in our call to worship. It's almost word for word from the psalm. There's really only two differences between 1 Peter and Psalm 34. First, Psalm 34 is mostly in the second person, where Peter changes it to the third person. And second, Peter adds the word for at the start of verse 12 to emphasize something. So the context of Psalm 34 is that King David wrote a song of thanksgiving to the Lord. And when God's people cry out for help, the Lord answers them and helps them. He helps them. He rescues them from danger. The psalm also has elements of a wisdom psalm, though. So in addition to the thanksgiving, there's a wisdom psalm, which teaches you how to live a godly life. And we'll see in these verses that Peter's application of the psalm is very similar to the original meaning back in Psalm 34. All right, now back to 1 Peter 3. The following three verses are all an expansion and explanation on that last verse we looked at in verse 9, that you might obtain a blessing. After reading verse 9, the natural inclination as a reader is to ask how to obtain a blessing. Well, verses 8 through 9 did give an answer, but we, we always want more detail. We always want more answers on what it means to practically live out the Scripture. And verses 10 through 12 give us further explanation of how we may obtain a blessing. So verse 10 opens with the category of those being addressed. Whoever desires to love life and see good days, they need to pay attention. Now, does anyone in here not want to live a good life? Okay. Does anyone in here want to be miserable instead of content and happy? I'm shocked to see no hands going up. Yeah, those are easy questions to answer. Desiring to live a life, a good life, is a good thing. It is not a bad thing. There's nothing wrong with being happy and being healthy. If it were a bad thing to desire a good life, then David and Peter would not say these things here. There's nothing wrong with being happy and healthy. But the problem is this. The problem is when we attempt to seek the good life without God. Because a life of comfort and ease can become an idol of your heart just as easily as money or power. Verse 12 will make this clear, but the good life, Is one that is joyful and happy because you are content with what God has called you to. And one where you are also living according to his commands. So if you desire to love life and see good days by your own strength, for your own appetites, you will see neither. Peter says that the one seeking a good life must keep his tongue from evil and his lips from speaking deceit you can see the parallels between those two commands. The ideas are very similar, yet both are spoken for emphasis. We cannot use our speech in ways that promote or encourage evil of any kind. We cannot egg people on to do wrong. I'm sure you all witnessed that phenomenon at some point growing up with your friends. So whether walking on school rooftops or trespassing on government land, teenagers love to egg each other on with things like that. But adults often go A little further in using their words for evil, gossip, slander, and abusive language. Those are things that are pervasive in our culture. And really, this all reminds me of what Paul says about fallen man in Romans 3. He says, their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asps is under their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. So the words of the unbeliever are anything but pure. But even as believers, we can sometimes slip into those sins. The holiest people have gossiped at some point. We have all spoken deceitfully at some point. Or maybe it seemed milder. You were scared of hurting someone's feelings, so you lied outright. That's a great idea. No, it wasn't. It was wrong, and you should have found a gentle way of saying so. We have been called to use our words in good and in holy ways. Well, next in verse 11, Peter writes that the one who wants to have a good life must turn away from evil and do good. And notice that this is really two steps being made. First, there is a step away from doing the evil thing. And only then is there a positive step, positive movement towards doing good. And really what I think we see here is the language of repentance. Following the Lord and living a good life is entirely dependent Upon this two step operation. So while believers still sin in this life and at times may even walk in sin, they cannot be characterized by sin. You are saints who still sin, not sinners who are saintly. We cannot belong to both realms of sin and righteousness. Our lives must follow this pattern of turning away from sin and to righteousness. And notice that Peter commands you to do good. The language of doing good appears only 12 times in the New Testament, and six of them are in 1 Peter. He is very concerned that all the saints know why we are still walking on this earth. We are not saved to sit up on a pedestal and wait and do nothing. We are called for the purpose of doing good works, evangelizing and serving the Lord to what he has called us to in this life. Verse 11 also tells us that we must seek peace and pursue it. Now, this is the only thing that is is explicitly commanded twice in this passage. There's a high premium placed on this state. And we we can connect this to what Paul says in Romans 12. If possible, so as far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Now, peace is an oddity here in that it requires two parties in order to succeed. You can do everything in your power to be at peace with a relative, a neighbor, or a former friend. But if the other person refuses to be at peace, there's nothing more you can do. That's why I love what Paul said in Romans 12, and that Peter urges us to pursue it with zeal without commanding us to be at peace. Being at peace with all is a difficult task that is not always possible. But Peter didn't command you to make peace with all, but to seek and to pursue peace. And only when we have peace with others can we have any sort of calm or live a good life. Well, this is the last of the instructions to you in the text this morning. This passage presents us with many difficult tasks as believers. The difficulties of being sojourners and exiles in this world are many. We walk in this world, but it is in our home. And as a result, the world is going to hate us. The world is going to persecute and ostracize us for what we believe. Now, the duties back in verse 8 were probably the easiest to accept, since they tell us how to interact with other believers. The most difficult commands are definitely those in verse 9, where we are not allowed to return evil or reviling on our abusers. Instead, Peter commanded us to do the unthinkable and to bless our persecutors. Verses 10 through 11 carried on that same thread of not resorting to evil words or behavior of the world around us. We must be doing good to all people, even blessing those we may have the most reason to dislike. But Peter doesn't leave us without motivation or the encouragement we need to fulfill our duty to bless. And you may have noticed in verse 12, the focus shifts away from our duty and what the reason for our duty is. When it seems as though one or possibly all of the commands given are too much, We need to understand that the Lord knows our situation. Peter says that the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous. You may read that and get the sense that God is watching you like a taskmaster watches a slave. That's not the intent of the quote. Having the eyes of the Lord upon you here is a wonderful thing. He isn't sitting back as a cold or a distant spectator. It means that the Lord knows everything about your situation and he is watching out for you. His countenance, his blessing is upon you for your protection and for your good. You're under the watchful eye of your heavenly Father. And the encouragement of that line only grows when we connect it with Peter's next line. The Lord's ears are open to their prayers. So not only are you under God's watchful eyes, but he is also listening to your prayers at all times. He's a God who delights in the prayers of of his children. So even in the most difficult times of life, the Lord knows exactly what is taking place in our lives. He will not fail to bless and reward his children in this life and in the next. And the greatest reward and blessing of living the good life of faith is that we begin to hold, behold the glory of Jesus' face. But for those who oppress, mistreat, and abuse the saints, they have no such hope. And the irony is that they too will see the face of the Lord directed toward them. But the face of the Lord will not lead to the wicked man receiving blessing or having his prayers heard. Peter says that the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. That means that the wrath of God is set against wicked men. He sits over them in judgment, seeing all the evil they commit and keeping a record for the great trial. So to the wicked, the face of the Lord is the most terrifying and damning thing imaginable. The Lord will be their judge, and they will not endure the trial. But how can God's face toward the believer mean grace and blessing, and at the same time, his face toward the unbeliever, the wicked man, mean judgment and hell? Does the face of God change depending on the person? The holiness and the righteousness of God is absolute. There is nothing and no one who comes anywhere close. To the perfection of God. And if he is indeed the the definition of perfection, then he may not ever change. If he became more perfect, it would mean he was not truly perfect before. If he became less holy, then he would be less than perfect. But, But as it is, the Lord is perfect in holiness, righteousness, and justice. So the difference between the believer and the unbeliever's experience has nothing to do with God's face and everything to do with themselves. The unbeliever comes before the absolute holiness of God and the filth of their own sin. The holiness of the Lord is a consuming fire that searches out and destroys sin. God hates sin with a fierce anger. A man may not stand before the Lord with so much as a drop of sin and receive a blessing. The standard is complete and total perfection. Therefore, all of mankind is guilty before the God of the universe. They may only receive his wrath and displeasure. There's only one way to have the eyes of God look upon you for your good and for his ears to hear your prayers for your good. You must come to God perfectly clean without so much as a hint of sin. You must be completely and totally righteous and blameless before the Lord. Only then only one thing can cleanse you from your sin and make you worthy of the Father's blessings. You need the blood of Christ to cover you from head to foot, soul to heart. Only then can you be cleansed and forgiven. Only then will the watchful eyes of the Father be upon you for your good. Only then will we hear your prayers and answer them for your good. And only then can you pursue a holy life and have the strength needed to bless all people. You are called to holiness and right living as believers. But you may only do so through the blood of Christ. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you that your blood covers over us. For we are every bit as deserving as your judgment and your wrath as the unbeliever. And yet through the blood of Christ and your calling, you have set us apart. You have washed us. You have cleansed us not to sit, not to stand by and wait but to do your work here on the earth. That you have called us to ministry, to speaking, to evangelizing. You have placed these things in our heart, no less. You have given us a desire and a zeal to do them and the means to accomplish them. O Holy Spirit, work among us. Work in our hearts. Let us live lives of holiness that are pleasing to you. But let us remember in doing so that we are only doing so through the blood of Christ. lift all these things up to you in his name. Amen.